When you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts, part five. Doubts caused by a failure to grow. I can still remember the very first time and only time I got up on water skis. You try so hard for so long just to get up out of the water. You know how that is if you've had a hard time. You, you, the first 15, 16 times you just swallow half the lake and a bunch of minnows and you spit them out and you go back and you, you try again and you try again. And after a number of failures, you start to actually think that all you have to do is get up on those skis and, and you'll be fine. You, you spend all your time and energy, you struggle, you wobble uh, just to get up out of the water. And then when it finally does happen, you make another discovery. Once you get up out of the water, you forget that you have to also stay up out of the water. I can still remember that momentary feeling of just euphoria that I got up out of the water on those skis and I thought I was, I was ready for the Olympics. And then you start looking around and you see the waves. What do I do next? How do I turn? What about these bumpy waves? Why do my legs feel like rubber? What's happening? And you go from feeling, when you first get up on the skis, the the lake is my oyster, to tumbling head over heels. That's about as far as I got with all those questions. The next thing I knew, I was bobbing for minnows. Because it's never enough just to start. Many of the doubts we've studied in this series have to do with problems believers face getting started in the Christian life. We saw sometimes they never lay a proper foundation of understanding what they're getting into when they sign on in the Christian life. That's where we said because they never established a why for their faith, they never had a good why not for their doubts. Sometimes people get into the Christian life and never make a clean break. They make a clean break with habits and actions that they felt weren't holy, weren't befitting for a Christian follower of Christ, but they never did make a clean break with patterns of thought, worldviews that were entrenched long before they were converted, and their newly professed faith in Jesus seems weak and kind of diluted because it It never took hold in a renewed mind, just a patched mind. I'll try not to swear. I'll I'll try not to look at porn on the internet. I'll I'll try not to uh, cheat on my taxes. I'll I'll, I'll try to not be so quick-tempered. And so they ended up with this rather sterile mix of old and new affections and priorities. And as James says, a double-minded man, well, he'll just never be strong, no matter how much religion gets Like on a Sunday, you squirt all that stuff on the top. But if there's nothing under it, it it looks pretty, but there's nothing there. This week, 
And last, we're looking at particular forms of doubt that arise later on in the Christian life. I mean, I think these doubts we would call maintenance doubts rather than startup doubts. Today I'm going to talk to you about doubts that come from from a lack of growth. And maybe the first thing we need to do is consider the most important fact everyone needs to know about the, the nature of genuine New Testament faith. Some things, just by nature, they have to be increasing and growing and moving forward in order to work at all. I gave the illustration last week. Remember about riding a bike? When you're afraid of riding a bike and you're afraid of learning to ride a bike and the training wheels come off the bike, one of the worst things you can do is let your fear cause you to try and stand still on a bike because a bike doesn't stay up standing still, right? By nature, a bike only stays up when it's moving forward. If you want to just be still, you need a chair, not a bike. Because a bike is not designed to stand still. A bike is designed to move forward, to stay active. And, and, and that is just a bedrock principle in understanding the Christian life. If, if faith is ever reduced to a one-time decision, and we do that, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. I asked Jesus into my heart. When? Uh, July 25th, 1973. I'm not saying that's untrue. What I am saying, if you come to think of that as what faith essentially is, you're doomed to failure in your Christian life. Because that date is when you were born in Christ. It's not the day you learn to walk and you have to keep breathing, and you have to keep eating, just like physical life. Anybody that reduces faith to a one-time decision is doomed to a life of emptiness and failure, because like a bike, faith must be kept moving ahead, or it simply ceases to function at all. It's not just that it's weak faith, it stops being faith. And maybe there's another point to be made from that bike illustration. What would you say to a person who is trying to sit still on a bike? You watch him fall over and over. You see him scraping up his knees and his elbows. And finally, as you watch through the window, he comes running into the house, screaming, upset, This is the most useless piece of junk I've ever seen. I don't know why anybody even bothers with these things. Bikes don't work. And you'd probably try and calm the little child down. And you'd try and point out that actually there's nothing wrong with the bike. The bike isn't broken and the bike isn't useless. The bike will work fine... Just as long as you remember, it's a bike, not a chair. I wonder how many Christians, later on in life, 
reach college, university, whatever, and lament about their faith like that child railed against the bike. I wonder how many Christians find their faith wobbly, unsubstantial, and maybe in a quiet, inwardly polite way, they just start to question the value of their faith rather than their failure to use their faith properly. See, for many Christians, the problem isn't that their faith is useless, just unused. And those are two very different things. There are many Christians, now in their 40s, who think they have decided their faith isn't as valid as it used to be when they were younger. Perhaps they think they've reached a point in life where their faith is no longer relevant. But in all likelihood, that's not what happened at all. What has happened is very different. They, they, they moved on and they've grown and matured in every other area of life but their faith. And then they wonder why their faith doesn't fit anymore with all the other areas of their life that has grown and matured. So the issues of daily life got bigger and bigger, but their faith remained the same size. And naturally, that makes them think their faith is too small. I know I'm on dangerous ground here. I wonder how many, I'm sure it's not true of any women in this church. But I wonder how many women on a special occasion or just out of interest one day went and found their wedding gown. And in the quiet of some moment or some special occasion tried to put it on. Again, I'm sure this has never happened to anyone in this church. I've had it, let me move to safer territory. (laughs) I've had it happen where you're digging through your stuff and you know you're going to, my wife is always wanting to bag up stuff and and take it to Goodwill or some other food, uh, clothes, drop-off place and and you go through and you find an old pair of pants that you didn't see in the back of the closet and they've just been hanging there and hanging there and hanging there. And, you, and I think, well, these look pretty nice. I'm the only one that thinks that. And I'll take them out and you try and put them on and, 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 and you think, what has someone done with these pants? Right? It's, it's like who snuck in at night and took in all the seams on your wedding gown? And it's easy to conclude the wedding gown is too small. But, but the wedding gown didn't change size, right? Something else happened. I hope you think about that when I'm talking about how someone comes to Christ. This is... So, so common. Someone comes to Christ, maybe at an early age, and that's a very precious thing. And they've gone through Sunday school. Of course, most churches don't do this anymore. And they've learned some Bible stories, and they ask Jesus into their heart. And and 
So they go to church, but basically, since that time, their faith has stayed roughly the same size. But then they've gone on in other areas of life, and they've been challenged career-wise, they've been, and they've spent a lot of energy and effort, and they've been challenged intellectually as education advanced, and they've had different professors and teachers, and they've been challenged in this area and in that area, and they've made friends who aren't Christians at all and influenced them with their worldview and the choices they make. And, and then, of course, now we've got, we've, we're watching Netflix and all the movies and all the television programs, and that's all coming at them with a totally different view from anything they ever learned in Sunday school. And so all these things, they're, they're reaching out, they're growing, they're thinking about these things, life is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're still walking around with this tiny little faith that they had in Sunday school. Do you get what I'm saying? And like that wedding gown taken out of the back of the closet, they're saying, this, this faith doesn't fit anymore. I don't think this works. I don't think this is adequate. Now, the truth of the situation is actually very different than they suppose. Their face Faith feels useless because it hasn't been applied on a consistent basis. And what they're calling their faith hasn't been genuine faith, perhaps for years. What they presently have isn't living faith. It's the memory of a faith they used to have a long time ago. But here's the point to emphasize. Just as we saw in the illustration with the bike, there's nothing wrong with the faith. It's not that the faith won't stand up. The truths of the faith are no less true now than when they embraced them earlier. God is no less real. No argument has been marshaled to rob them of their confidence in God. This is not how this kind of doubt grows and slowly kidnaps the heart. The process is more silent, more gradual. Doubt from a lack of growth is always polite and a gradual way that a careless Christian simply shelves a living faith when at some point much earlier, and it wasn't intellectual, there was some point where that Christian failed to live up to the demands of the faith he or she professed because it was going to cost them something. He may think that by never actually denying the faith, he's somehow in better spiritual shape than the atheist, but that's just a delusion. By not choosing to move forward in faith, a silent vote for unbelief has already been cast. Just very quietly going to church the whole time. Point number one. You all okay? If faith is not constantly exercised and nourished, it will never seem real to its possessor. No book deals with this like the book of James. James chapter 2 14 to 20. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says 
he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So there's still a profession. He, he says that he has faith. But it's, it's, it's not being lived out. So can that faith save him? Now, that's the principle. He, and just because James, like any good teacher, knows that just principles by themselves don't always register, he gives an illustration. But it's just an illustration. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. So this is, of course, saying all the right things, right? That's what a Christian should feel in the heart. But without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, now here's what he's talking about. It, it's this, that faith. It's a bit of a mess, I know. But that's what he's talking about here. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So note that last word, and you'll see the issue clearly. Useless faith. Like the child who stomped away from the bike on the driveway because it wouldn't stand up. This is the person who has come to the place where he or she simply has no way of establishing the reality of faith because, because it's not being used in daily actions and choices the way it was meant to be used in daily actions and choices. It's just professed. It's sung about. It's read about. It's prayed about. But that's all. And so James states the obvious. Of course, that kind of faith is going to seem useless. But it isn't due to some actual deficiency in the object, in Jesus Christ. The truth of God's word. It isn't because of that that it's useless. It's simply unused. It has become nothing more than a set of memorized statements. Church statements. Belief statements. But because it isn't geared into life, it, of course, isn't going to seem relevant to life. How could it? And no intelligent person will long devote himself to something he deems irrelevant. And so James, he has a perfect term to describe the person who uses his faith like a chair instead of a bike. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded Man. Does this just look like a life full of doubt to you? Unstable in all his ways. Double-minded is the perfect term. It's, it's not that the unused faith is denied. The person isn't an atheist. Rather, because the faith is inactive, because it only exists as an idea in the mind, it's, it's powerless to dominate the whole life. 
the, the actual direction of the life is determined by some other more dominant affection, more dominant ambition, more dominant association in terms of friends, more dominant worldview. That's what's steering the life. The faith is just tucked in the back of the head like a bunch of beliefs. It might be helpful just to look at that idea of worldview for just a minute. Point number two. For faith to move forward, think of the bike, it must be the worldview you function with every moment of the day. Perhaps this helps to put a fresh explanation on what a growing, forward-moving faith is all about. Every person, every person in this room has some dominant worldview, some framework through which you interpret and process all the events of life. Remember, like green sunglasses make everything you look at appear green? Everyone has a worldview. Now, everyone in this room would profess to having a Christian worldview, but not everyone in this room, in fact, operates. It's just statistically. Not everyone in this room operates with a Christian worldview. Worldview is what gives our circumstances meaning. Worldview is how we establish our priorities. Worldview is how we use our time. You'll see your worldview in a little while. The offering plate will come around. Worldview is how you invest and spend and sacrifice your money. Where you put it. That's, that's worldview. How, how we train our children. That's worldview. So your faith... Your faith must be the worldview you function with moment by moment. It's, it's, it's not the worldview you profess that counts, but the one you use, like, like the bike. If you come to the place where the faith you profess is no longer what you actually use to set your goals, to make your choices, then your faith will soon feel totally meaningless. It can't be otherwise. It can't be otherwise. So, this is when doubts begin to stalk your heart like jackals stalk a wounded calf. Because because the exercise of faith has been long ignored. Its muscles are dormant. Your faith will no longer be strong enough to explain your circumstances, to organize your choices, to answer your questions. It'll still sound nice in some religious theoretical way. It'll look great in church. But it will seem like an impractical way to function in the real world. There are tons of Christian people like that in the James is right. When faith isn't used, when it isn't applied, the individual becomes double-minded. He's carrying around a belief system that, that is as useful as a screen door on a submarine. Three. This is why all the biblical images of faith are active and strenuous. 
I don't know if you've noticed these before. Let me just point out a couple of them. The life of a runner stretching for a finish line. Do you not know that in a race, there it is, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Run that you may obtain it. This verse is not teaching that only one person is going to heaven. What the verse is saying, this person presses on in faith as though only one person were going to make it to heaven. Only one gets the prize. So Paul's talking about the kind of attitude you carry around in your faith. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 9, 26. I do not run aimlessly, nor do I, here's one, box as one beating the air. I haven't watched boxing for a long, long, I'm not a boxing fan. I have no arguments, I'm just saying I'm not a fan. But I do remember years ago when I used to watch. I used to watch it when, when Muhammad Ali was at his prime. Maybe some of you old people can remember that. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you know, that whole thing. I watched that fight with Sonny Liston. A lot of people don't think that was a fight. It only lasted about 17 seconds. It's one thing, isn't it, to be in a gym punching a bag and swinging at the air. It's quite another thing when somebody else is there coming at you. And, and so there's this recognition that, that your faith. You run in a race like you're competing with everybody else. You exercise your faith, not like you're boxing the air, but because there's, there's opposition. You've taken your stand. Here's another one. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So now it's like a wrestling match. You ever watch those guys when they wrestle, trying to pin each other to the mat? Here's another image. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So every one of those examples, it just shines with this purposeful, energetic, pressing commitment to a a single goal and a single vision. There's nothing double-minded in these pictures. I know it's a, maybe a poor time for the illustration, but, but, but like those, those police officers in, in, in Dallas. Or, or picture, a, picture a, a soldier somewhere who's, who's behind the lines and he's fighting in, in Pakistan or somewhere against ISIS and you're, you're walking around at night and you know they're there and you've got your night vision and you're armed and you're walking around. That's the picture Paul has. In every movement, what is that? What is that? I'll guarantee you, not one of those soldiers walking around in the middle of the night is thinking about, I wonder how my uh, RRSPs are doing right now. You got like one thing on your brain. Not two, one. 
That's the picture of faith that Paul paints. We're not even used to hearing about it. Nothing double-minded in those pictures. In each case, the person knows who he is, why he does what he does, how he's going to get there. These people interpret their lives around a very dominant ambition. And, and that is what keeps faith sharp and in tune with real life. Because the runner is focused on the race, there's nothing irrelevant about that finish line. When you're running a race, all you think about is that finish line. There is nothing else. We're almost done. Four. What can we do to guard our faith from doubts that come from a lack of growth? Let me give you a few practical thoughts, okay? A. Be very careful about faithfulness in what seem to be little mundane choices and duties. That's where faith starts to die. Not in big things. Faith starts to die in daily maintenance. These doubts are best resisted by remembering the way in which they approach. They don't come all at once. They come little by little, choice by choice, neglect by neglect. You're almost certainly losing more than you think when you skip devotions, when you stay home from church, when you act against faith's best interest, when you ignore conscience. You just drift. In fact, it's exactly the way the Bible describes it. Hebrews 2.1, therefore we must pay much, look at this, how much attention? How do you measure this? Where are you in your spiritual life? How much attention do you need to pay to your walk with the Lord? Well, more, that's what you have to do, more. The bike has to keep moving forward or falls over. We must pay much more closer attention to what we have heard lest we, there's the opposite, drift away from it. Not fall away from it. Drift away from it. Drifting is a problem. Os Guinness says, with these kinds of doubts, faith is not torn up. It is merely frayed. It is not eaten away suddenly, just nibbled at the corners. Only the careful will see these kind of doubts coming in advance. Only the wise will know their own frailty and never give this process a chance to start. Hear me. This happens in many ways. The most common manifestation of drifting right now is the way Christian people, particularly, I'm sorry, particularly millennials, the way Christians think they can stay relationally close to Jesus while drifting away from frequent, regular church attendance. I said it. I believe it with all my heart. The number one way Christians are drifting from Jesus is they think they can stay close to Jesus and drift away from commitment to a local church. It is impossible. It is impossible. B, here's another. Help. Instantly obey anything God tells you to do in his word. A lot rides on how you view 
what happens when you disobey the Lord in one area of your life. I think Christians can view grace in such a way they can actually start to think that they can ignore Jesus in one area of life and because they are obeying him in so many others that all that actually happens is you move from being uh, an A-plus Christian to maybe a a B-plus Christian or an A-minus Christian. I talk to Christian people all the time. A common way that it manifests itself. The commitment that people make to living together before they're married and think they're following Jesus. And think that they'll get married one day and they'll repent of their sin and the marriage will roll along just, just fine. One of the series we're doing this fall, posters will be up soon, is I'm going to do about four weeks on the little piece of paper that makes all the difference how living together before marriage diminishes life after the vows. And we're going to study that as a church together. Because people don't think it's a big deal. And even if it's wrong, well, it's God's job to forgive me. Right? It's his job. He's very nice. So the point here is faith is maintained by... Instantly obeying anything God tells you to do in his word. In the spiritual realm, you don't just go from an A plus to an A minus. It's not like a wrong answer on an exam. In the spiritual realm, in the Christian life, transgressions are far more serious than that. The whole fabric of your faith is compromised and weakened. You start a downward spiral into motion. And your faith will seem increasingly irrelevant as you develop the habit of not Heeding what God says in his word. And you won't long hold intellectually to a faith you don't have to consistently demonstrate in your actions. You just won't do it. But the problem isn't with your faith. The faith. The problem is one of obedience. going to end there. Those that are going to serve communion, you can go now, okay, and just get the emblems ready. That's fine. Just get up and just go do it. The rest of you just keep listening to me, all right? I'm so impressed by all those images where, where faith is likened to running a race, where it's likened to a boxer, where it's likened to a wrestler in a wrestling match, where it's likened to a soldier on reconnaissance duty. Because I don't think that... There are places where the church thinks that way, but I don't think the dominant North American view of the church is that at all. It's, it's, it's Christians getting together and sort of celebrating God and having a good time. And, and there's, there's certainly a place for that. There's certainly a place for that. But you will not long hold to a faith that is irrelevant in your, in your ambitions. What are you living for? And your affections. What brings you the most joy? Because, if, if, because something deadens in the soul that sings about loving Jesus in just about every worship course we sing... 
and then loving everything else more when you get out of this sanctuary. There is no soul on earth that can survive that kind of schizophrenia. None. 